You know, from the very beginning, the Word of God, Scripture, was to have the supreme and central place in the lives of God's people. That's true, isn't it? That from the very beginning, the Word of God, the Scriptures, were to have the supreme and central place in the lives of God's people. I mean, you just never, ever get the sense anywhere from the Bible that you can somehow divorce the Word of God from God himself because to have the Word of God is to have God himself. Not because the pages and the cover themselves are God, but because the words on the page are a portal to the very presence of God. The Bible's very definition of true piety and godliness is that the word of God is the gravitational center of our lives. And that it should and must govern everything that we do. For instance, in the oldest book of the Bible, Job said, I have not departed from the command of your lips. I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses told the people just on the other side of Canaan, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 32, 47, indeed, it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. This is not just some piece of literature that you could just take or leave. No, this is your very life. Everything in your life is to bow in allegiance to what God says in the text. Psalm 1 says that the righteous man, that the very definition of what it means to be righteous is to meditate on his word day and night like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Psalm 19.10 says that the word of God is more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. And then you get to Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible, which means that God is communicating through his word that the most important thing in life is his word and on and on the scriptures go heralding proclaiming exalting displaying the supremacy of the word of God until it culminates in Hebrews 4.12 the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart do you see the very center of our faith, the foundation of our faith, the nuclear core reactor of our faith, the jugular vein of our faith is the very book that you're holding in your hands. So God is clear and unmistakable. This book must have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections which is exactly why we're taking the next two weeks to talk about this book, both what it is, how it changes lives, and how you are to read it the way the Bible wants you to read it, because you know that we have paused in Isaiah just for a little bit, not too long, for a little while, to talk about what I'm calling the disciplines of grace. The disciplines of grace, and by that I don't mean merely being more disciplined, rather I mean the the spiritual disciplines of grace. And by that I mean the most significant activities in your life that God commands. I'm talking about the most meaningful tasks that a human being can do. And the reason why they are is because these are a gateway to the very power and presence of God himself. Which means, yes, I am talking about the word and prayer. I'm talking about reading and praying, meditation and supplication. Passionate study in the word of God passionate prayer before the throne of God. You understand, there are no pursuits in life that excel these. You know that, right? There are no commitments in this world that surpass these. Human beings are at the apex of their greatness when they seek the triune God in the sacred text and through urgent, needy, desperate supplications and prayer. 
Like I said last week, the elders and I, we are persuaded from the word of God that the church of God brings glory to God when the saints of God know how to read the word of God and when they know how to pray to God. And last week we talked about prayer, didn't we? That almost unbelievable act of worship where a mere human being encounters the very presence of God himself. And we saw last week that prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice. Rather, it is a weapon given to the church in a world of darkness and unbelief. That prayer is the means through which God unfolds his plan of salvation advancing in the world. And this morning and next week, we fix our attention on the living and active word of God, what it is, how it changes lives, and how we are to read it the way the Bible wants us to read it. I can't think of any better way to start that conversation than to look at Psalm 119. Because again, you know what this psalm is. It is a carefully crafted, highly structured poem of 176 verses, and every single line in this poem is about one singular object, namely the centrality, the supremacy, and the absolute sufficiency of the Word of God. Again, consider the longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. Psalm 119 is 176 reasons why the word of God should have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. And the reason it should is because it's not just true, it is truth itself. It's not just helpful, it is the help itself. It comes loaded on every page with the very power and supremacy of God himself. But you see, we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because what it is is an encounter with the living, all-satisfying God through the words on the page. And so this morning my aim is very simply to use Psalm 119 to persuade you that this book must have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. And so here we go. This morning I want you to see Three compelling reasons. Three compelling reasons why you need umbilical cord attachment to the word of God. Three, what I feel are compelling reasons from the text, why you need umbilical cord attachment to the word of God. By that I mean that when you were born, the umbilical cord was cut, was it not? It should have been, I hope so. But you see, when we are born again, we stay attached. We stay attached to God through his word. I'm talking about dependence. I'm talking about radical dependence. And so compelling reason number one. Number one, the word alone can renew your minds. The word of God alone can renew your minds. Here's what's really profound about verses 33 through 40 in Psalm 119. Not only do all eight verses begin with the Hebrew letter hey or H in English, but every single verse in this stanza, except for the last one, begins with an urgent request of helpless dependence. And you see, Hebrew grammarians call this particular Hebrew verb form causative active. Causative active meaning, meaning the writer is asking God to make something happen, to cause something to happen in his life. In fact, in every single one of these verses, you could legitimately insert the word cause into your translation and you would get the sense of the Hebrew. For instance, verse 33, it says teach me, but you could render it cause me to learn. Verse 34, cause me to understand. Verse 35, cause me to walk. Cause me to my heart to be inclined. Cause my eyes to not look at vanity. Do you see? The issue on the table here is radical dependence because that's how the Bible wants you to use the Bible in moment by moment, desperation and dependence in umbilical cord attachment. In verses 33 and 34, you can tell they're connected. Notice they're connected by the theme of needing God's help to know, to, to understand God's word, because this is understanding God's word is where all life change and holiness begins. Look at the text, 33 and 34. 
Teach me, O Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me or cause me to understand, and I will keep your law, and I will keep it with all of my heart. Do you see the connection? In two different ways, he's asking for divine assistance to understand the text. He sits himself down, as it were, uh, in front of the podium of Yahweh as a learner and pupil and, and student and disciple with Yahweh as the master teacher and divine professor. In verse 33, quite literally, he says, Cause me to learn, Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Which is interesting, isn't it? That he views Yahweh himself as the instructor of his own word, which, of course, he is. And that doesn't negate the need for human preachers or teachers or professors because they also are the means of learning God's word. But the point is that that Yahweh was to be his ultimate instructor in and through all other teachers and preachers. In other words, the point is at the end of the day, all right understanding of God's word is a gift from God himself. And again, that doesn't mean we don't think hard about the text because we should and we must. We must do that. You need to be greedy for the greater riches of the Bible. Digging and sweating and clawing at the text with our minds to see what the living God has to say. But, what, but at the end of the day, when it's all said and done through the means of rigorous meditation, when we understand the text, that is a gift from God himself. You you understand reading the Bible, this is profoundly supernatural. This is a divine transaction here. And you understand knowing the text, understanding the text, that is the means to all right living. You see, if you don't know the text, you can't be transformed by the text. You can't apply what you don't know. You cannot be what you have never discovered. Because God the Spirit is the great sanctifier sanctifier of our lives, absolutely. But you see, the holy chisel that he uses to carve us into the image of Christ is the blade of Holy Scripture because it's not called the sword of the Spirit for nothing. So the obvious question is, how is your Bible reading going? And by Bible reading, I don't mean in some legalistic way where you merely check the box. Rather, I mean, do you strive for meaningful, heartfelt desperation and dependence upon God as you read the sacred text? Because that's how the Bible wants you to read the Bible. The question is, is that how you read the Bible? Is there within you this sense of anticipation that you are about to hear the voice of the living God? Do you have a a sense of desperation knowing that you need God's help to know God's word? Which looks like what? What does that look like to have desperation as you and dependence upon God as you read his word? What does that look like? Well, it looks like three things. To have that profound dependence upon God as you read looks like three things. It looks like before, during, and after you read. You see, before you read, you plead with God to open your eyes to the meaning of the text. While you read, you mutter prayers to God. As you think about the text, you ask for help to be faithful and careful with the text. And then after you read, you plead with God to help you apply and be transformed by the text. Which is exactly what he asked for. Look at the end of verse 33. Look what happens when we have a God-given understanding of the text. Cause me to learn, Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and the result will be I will keep it to the end. Do you see that the byproduct of tenacious dependence upon God to understand his word is life change and transformation. He says, I will keep it to the end. Meaning what? Meaning Lifelong holiness all the way to the end. So you see, don't you, 
how Psalm 119 wants you to read the Bible. Transformation comes through meditation, which is done on desperation on the power of God itself. Which is why he prays what he does in verse 34. You understand, we need new minds. Look at verse 34. Give me understanding. Literally, cause me to understand, and I will keep your law, and I will keep it with all of my heart. I mean, can you see what he's asking here? Help me to understand. Cause me to see what is just there in the text, not to import what I want there to be. Cause me to see what is there already in the text. To have a God awaken conviction to what the text means because inevitably what that produces is profound life change and transformation. Look at the end of the verse. The poet puts it, when that happens, when I have that understanding, I will keep your law and I will keep it with all of my heart. And you understand what the word of God unleashed in his life was not some half-baked, half-hearted, begrudging obedience but rather consuming, passionate, radical obedience with all of his heart. Because you understand, God has zero, zero interest in mere external conformity to his word when we would much rather be sinning. Rather, what delights the heart of God, what thrills the heart of God is passionate delight to do what God commands. That's exactly what the psalmist wants question is, is that what you want? Is that what you want? Do you want to keep his law with all of your heart? Or are you what is called a fine print Christian? You declare your allegiance to Christ in big, bold, headline letters, but the fine print of your heart says, no, some areas of my life will remain under my domain. God can't have that. God can't touch that. This is mine. That's a really scary place to be if that's where you are, and I pray that you're not, because if that's where you are, you are a few years away and a couple steps away from total apostasy. Because mark my words, the cracks of compromise will eventually accumulate and the dam will break and you will be swept away in a flood of iniquity. But you don't have to go down that road. And you must not either. Because Christ is always there. In his word, ready to meet you, ready to minister to you, ready to fulfill the deepest cravings of your soul, to give you the very power to do what God commands. That's how we persevere in holiness firm until the end when we have a new mind and a God-awakened understanding of the text, which brings us to compelling reason number two, that you should have umbilical cord attachment to the word. Number two, the word alone can renovate your life. The word of God alone can renovate your life. And as I've thought about Psalm 119 throughout the years, I'm always struck by the profound staggering, life-changing potential of this psalm. What I mean is when you think about the exalted holiness, the lofty holiness that this psalm both commands and displays, I thought about it this way. I realized that even if you kept just one stanza of Psalm 119, it's divided up into 22 stanzas of, of eight verses. If you kept just one stanza of Psalm 119, just one, you would be the godliest person on the face of the planet. Seriously. Any group of eight verses in this psalm, even if you were to keep those with near 50% success rate, you would be the most humble, godly, Christ-exalting person on the planet. That's how powerful this psalm is, how extensive it is, how pervasive it is. The problem is, although we are called to keep Psalm 119, we cannot keep Psalm 119 because all we are on our own at best are spiritual paraplegics. 
and any estimation of ourselves that, are, that is higher than that, and we are living in a dream world. Now, that's precisely why the poet prays what he does in verse 35. Look at the text. He says, make me, very literally, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments, for in it I take pleasure. You know what that is? That's one of the most radical expressions of profound dependence found in the Bible. And it is precisely the way that we should pray in our lives. Because Paul did say, did he not, that there is nothing good in me, in my flesh, and what he meant was his ability to be holy. Christ did not, say, he, he, he said, did he not, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. That's exactly what he said. And what he was talking about was our ability to be holy. And that's what drives the psalmist to pray, make me, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. In other words, God, I need you. I need you to intervene and supply the very power to do what you command. So you understand what the psalmist prays here is not the abdication of his responsibility, but the admission of his depravity and his need for sovereign grace. I mean, he's fully responsible to, to obey. That doesn't change. That stays the same. But he is also fully responsible to pray and plead for the grace to make him obey. My question is, is that how you pray? Do you pray that way? Because you should. And you must. I mean, what are these verses doing on the page if these are not the very paradigm by which God wants us to pray and ask for his grace, to ask for his power. Because you see, a paraplegic is responsible to depend on their caretaker for everything. This is moment by moment dependence upon the caretaker. Anything less than that would be foolish and irrational. That's exactly the case with us, isn't it? And it just shows the profound generosity of God, does it not, that he wants us to pray this way? I mean, this is so liberating that prayers are like this in the Bible for us to pray back to God. I've said this before. God is not like Pharaoh who makes us make bricks without straw and then beats us when we can't meet the quota. No. God supplies in his son through the word by the spirit, the very power to do what he demands and the very power to avoid what he forbids. And then he's got the audacity to reward us at the end of the age for everything done in dependence upon his son. That's who God is. That's what Christianity is. Not a will-powered religion, but an umbilical cord-like connection to God through his word. And inquiring minds want to know, why does the psalmist want this? What, what drives him to pray this? What are his motives? What, what drives him to want to walk the path of God's commands? Look what he says, verse 35. Cause me to walk in the path of your commands. Here it is. For in it I take pleasure. Do you see what he wants? What he needs? Pleasure is what he wants. Joy and pleasure and delight, I love your commands, God. I love it when you tell me what to do. Why? Because he rightly understands, get this, that the battle for his holiness is simultaneously the battle for his happiness. That his fight for purity is simultaneously the fight for his pleasure. That the more sanctified he is, the more satisfied he is. That the path of God's commands is not the obstacle to his joy, but the opportunity for his joy. Do you see? So you see the message of the poet, don't you? Listen very carefully. Desperate dependence leads to radical holiness in which is found our highest happiness. That's the message of the poet. 
Desperate dependence leads to radical holiness in which is found our highest happiness. Little flock, my question is, what what ails you this morning? What tempts you this morning? What haunts you? What beleaguers you? What troubles you? What fears and struggles and burdens and sins are tempting you to veer off the pleasure-filled path of dependence on God's commands? Because here you have not merely the permission, you have the responsibility to plead with God to intervene and make you, cause you to obey And so what do you do? You weave this text into your prayer life. You pray this to the Lord before you walk out the door. You launch this prayer into the stratosphere before you go on about your day. That's why it's there in the text for you to take this text and use it in the trenches as you are are surrounded on every side by temptation. Don't you see the greatest weapon you have on the pleasure-filled path of perseverance is a radical dependence on God through his word. But then you notice in verse 36, the writer digs a little deeper. He moves beneath the behavior on the surface to the heart that drives the behavior. And notice what he says. It's both radical and liberating. Look at the text. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Incline my heart, he says, or very literally, cause my heart to be inclined. Inclined to what? To God's testimonies. To what God has testified, revealed about himself. What is he asking? You could totally tell. He's pleading with God to bend the very longings and cravings of his heart to hunger for God's word instead of the shallow streams of iniquity. You knew this about me because I have complained about this before. But I absolutely detest eggs. Least appetizing food on the planet to me. I mean, unless they're baked into a cake or a pie, they are runny, smelly, rubbery, gag-inducing, and my appetite is profoundly not inclined to them. Add to the list mushrooms, tomatoes, tofu, Corn nuts, candy corn, crab, lobster, or pretty much anything that comes out of the ocean. You you cannot rewire my brain so that I start loving those things. But get this, you can have the wires of your soul rewire to start loving the word of God as the feast of your soul. You can, because that is exactly what he asks when he says, incline my heart to your testimonies. Because he knows. He knows that he can't be trusted. He knows that on his own, he will meander, he will wander into the polluted streams of sin and self-glory. He knows that inside his chest is the most lethal weapon of mass destruction known to man. Known as the sinful human heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have that within you? Therefore, he pleads with God to transform the taste buds of his soul to keep him from pursuing a path that would otherwise lead to his destruction. The question is, church, did you know that? I mean, not to sound over negative, but did you know that you cannot be trusted? That Judas the traitor lies just within your heart? That Jezebel the harlot queen lies just beneath your ribcage, that without the mediating grace of Jesus Christ through his word, we will always, always be inclined to what God has forbidden. That's precisely what drove the poet to pray, incline my heart to your testimonies, transform the taste buds of my soul so that I hunger for your testimonies because if God does not do that, the gravitational pull of our soul will always be inclined to what? What did the text say? 
Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to what? Not to dishonest gain. Do you see that? Which means he's talking about money here. And in particular, the love of money. He's talking about greed. He's talking about materialism. That's what dishonest gain is. It's very interesting to me that he pits these two things against one another to say that either we will find our supreme satisfaction in God through his word, or we will gravitate toward the seductions of greed and wealth. It's almost as if he's saying that, and that is exactly what he's saying. Church, this is really serious. Not because money is inherently evil, but it is inherently dangerous. I mean, we have the opposite of the Midas touch. You remember the Greek myth of Midas, that everything he touched turned to gold. We have the opposite of that. Our hearts are so wicked that all the gold that we touch can easily turn into an idol that destroys us. You remember, don't you, the chilling words of Paul? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, they may or may not be in your notes. Paul says... Those who desire to get rich, just just desiring to get rich, whether you actually get rich or not, just desiring to get rich plunges men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for, for, the root, for the root of all the evils is the love of money, and some by longing for it wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see any of that in your life? Is your heart inclined toward greed and gold and gain? Can you sense at all the growing cancer of discontentment in your life? Do you, do you see any warning signs at all that you are beginning to wander away from the faith in search of financial stability and security and, and a life of luxury in the American dream? Can you sense any of that in you? Do you love money is what I'm asking. I mean, the Bible's warnings about this are so serious that we really have to ask the question. And the issue is, of course, how would you know? How, how would you know if you were inclined toward greed and gain and gold? How would you know if you were beginning to love money and you would simply ask yourself this question? You would say, who am I and what do I crave when I am all by myself and no one can see me except God? What do I want in those moments? But you understand the God that we worship is what we think about the most when we are in solitude. So what do we do? I mean, we live in an economy. By God's providence, we need money to survive. There's nothing wrong with getting a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with asking for a raise. In fact, I'll even say there's nothing wrong at all with enjoying non-essential luxuries in this life. Even those things can be enjoyed for the glory of God. The question is, how do we be freed from greed and the magnet of materialism? That's the question. And the answer is, we have to love something more than money in order to not love we have to find something that glitters more than gold in order to not love gold. And the only thing that meets that description is the treasure of the sacred text because it's there in the text that Jesus Christ is there to meet us and fulfill the deepest longings in our souls for treasure of which he is the center. So what do we do then? What do we do then as we are immersed in a greedy culture that, are, that, that, it, that people plan, people come up with ways to convince you that the meaning of your life is found in the possessions that you accumulate? What do we do then? Well, what you do then is that you take this verse and others like it and you make them your moment-by-moment moment prayer in the trenches. You just plead with God to incline the appetite of your soul to hunger for the feast of his word. That's what you do. That's what it looks like to, when, when the scriptures talk about meditation, it's using his word as a weapon in real time as you go throughout your day. Finally, notice where he goes in verse 37. 
He's still talking about the need for God to renovate his life. And notice that he moves from the feet to the heart to the eyes. And he says, turn away my eyes. Or you could very literally render it, cause my eyes to not look at worthless things. Revive me in your way. I mean, you see what he's asking for, don't you? He's asking for God's intervention in real time as he moves about in a world that it surrounds him on every side with temptations that seek to allure him and to entice him. Because this guy knows. This guy knows that as soon as he closes his Bible or, or rolls up his scroll, that he is about to enter into a world filled with worthless things. Deceitful fraudulent, empty pleasures that seek to persuade us that they can do only what Jesus Christ can do, namely satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. And you see, he prayed this way because he knew himself all too well, didn't he? He knew that his eyes would trigger the tentacles of lust and coveting and greed and pride and self-glory in his soul. And so what does he do? He cries out with an expression of urgent deliverance, even for where his eyes go. Because he understands that the issue is not his lenses or corneas or his pupils. No, everything in our lives is always, always an issue of the heart. So the question is, how are you doing with your eyes? How are you doing with your eyes, with lust and porn and coveting and greed? What are the vain things in life that charm you the most? What is it outside these four walls that most easily gets your attention and pulls you away from Jesus Christ? You've got to ask the question. No matter what it is, it is possible. It is totally possible to control your eyes and what they do. And it 100% depends upon your relationship to God's word. Because the question is not so much do you read it or do you believe some things that are in it. But rather do you cling to it in moment by moment umbilical cord dependency. Or as as Christ puts it in John 15.5, do you abide in the vine? Which brings us to compelling reason number three. Compelling reason number three to have this umbilical cord attachment to the word of God. Number three, the word alone can rekindle new desires. The word of God alone can rekindle new desires. Because I really believe that one of the healthy uses of our imagination would be to play out in our minds what it would be like if we destroyed our lives with sin. You ever do that before? I mean, imagine what it would be like if you got entangled in an adulterous relationship and you got caught. What would happen if you were exposed in adultery? Imagine the initial terror and horror and dread as you got exposed The looks on the faces of your family and friends when they find out, first the shock, then the hurt, then the anger, then the tears, then the anger, then the hurt. Imagine the public shame and humiliation for you, for your family, for your church. The permanent shattering of trust. You're never, ever going to live this down. Imagine the broken hearts of everybody that knows you. Imagine the excruciating hours of conversations with family and friends and co-workers, with the elders of your church, as you, as you recount to them again and again and again your selfish, idolatrous act that led to the ruin of your life and the destruction of your family. And worst of all, worst of all, imagine the public shame and reproach it would bring to Christ. The the, the mockery that it would make him to the world, your credibility as an ambassador and spokesman for the gospel is, at least for the time being, effectively over. Who's going to listen to you? A lot of good it did for you. And in that moment, you would so wish, you would so wish, you would give anything to make it that it did not happen, but it will be too fire and you got burned and now you got to live with it 
but there is a way. There is a way to not go down that road. We don't actually have to crash and burn our lives with sin. We don't have to implode our families and blaspheme Christ with our hypocrisy. Get this, there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape. And the foolproof way to not crash our lives or shipwreck our lives on the jagged rocks of sin is what the Bible calls the fear of God. Fearing God is the answer. Fearing God is the way. That's exactly what the writer says in verse 38. Look at the text. We're almost done. He says, establish your word to your servant that you may be feared. There it is, fearing God. Fearing God. And yet when we think about fearing God, don't three questions come to mind? Number one, what does it mean to fear God? Number two, why would you even want to fear God? I mean, like, why is this a good thing? And number three, how is the fear of God produced in our lives? Number one, what does it mean to fear God? Because I get it. Fearing God kind of sounds like a tough sell, doesn't it? Loving God you get. Trusting God you embrace. But fearing God just doesn't seem compatible with the rest of the Christian life. I mean, how are you supposed to, how, how do you love a God that you're supposed to fear? And yet, if that's what you're thinking, the problem is not that you are called to fear God. The problem is likely in how you define what it means to fear God. Because what does it mean to fear God exactly? To fear him like a bloodthirsty monster? False. To fear him like an angry, unstable, abusive father? Wrong again. To fear him like cancer or or rapists lurking in shadowy parking lots? Not even close, rather, listen very carefully, to fear God, get this, is the raw, delicious terror that you taste when you begin to understand the magnitude of the God who never had a beginning. When you begin to grasp the towering majesty of God, The Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. To fear God means that you have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you're standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. Don't you see? It means that God is so real to us that we would never trifle with him nor treat him as common. In other words, to fear God is to tremble before him as the treasure of the soul. That's what it means to fear God. Which makes it patently obvious, number two, why would you want to fear God? Why, Why would you want to fear him? Because there are reasons. And the reasons are in the Bible. Fearing God is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 8.13. It brings healing to the body and refreshment to the bones, Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. It produces holiness in our lives, Proverbs 16.6. And according to Ecclesiastes 12.13, it is the very meaning of life itself. And so the question is, do you fear God? Do you tremble before God as the treasure of the soul? Do you have that profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you're standing on holy ground? How would you know? How would you know if you did fear God? Last week I asked the men at our men's meeting some questions about this, and I'm going to ask them to you. How would you know if you did fear God? You would ask yourself these questions. Number one, Are there some sins you would never do at church, but you would do somewhere else? Number two, who are you and what do you do when no one can see you except God? Number three, if you knew that you can indulge in the filthiest sin possible and no one would ever know about it or see it or find out about it except God, Would you do it? 
And then number four is the only thing that keeps you back from certain sins, the fear of not getting caught and not because of who God is. Because there is a world of difference between those two things. And how you answer each of those four questions determines if God is your God or if people are your God. This brings us to question number three. How is the fear of God produced in our lives? How is it produced? And the poet tells us precisely how it happens. And since we're in Psalm 119, you already know the answer, but pretend like you're surprised. Look at verse 38. He says, establish your word to your servant that you may be feared. Do you see it? What produces the fear of God in our lives? What produces the joyful trembling before him as the treasure of the soul? What does he say? The word does that. The word is the agent of God given to us by God that we may fear God. You understand, unless we see God, I mean really see him, and by that I mean in the pages of Scripture, the God who spoke galaxies into existence, who, who numbers the stars, who became a man, who calmed the sea with his voice, who was slain for sinners, who rose from the dead, who holds the universe into being, who will come again to slaughter his enemies and then establish his kingdom unless we are captivated by this God. Are you hearing me? Unless we are captivated by this God, we will always be casual and lukewarm and profoundly susceptible to the sins that would otherwise destroy us. So we must see him in the text because you understand careful, methodical meditation on Scripture is God's means of awakening glad-hearted treasuring of him above all things. A couple minutes, then we're done. Back to our scenario at the beginning. I think the poet did what we did. I think he played out in his mind what it would look like if he destroyed his life on the pleasures of sin and he definitely does not want that to happen. Look at verse 39. He says, turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your decrees are good. Do you see that? This is a man who knows. This is a man who knows, listen carefully, that a single sin allowed to live unrepentant in his life is like having a rattlesnake in his bed. This is a man who knows that a single drop of poison pollutes the entire glass of wine. That playing with sin is like playing with fire. The small embers enough are, are easy enough to justify, but the problem is sin is the most unstable element in the universe. You give it room to grow and to breathe, and it's just a matter of time before it explodes out of control. And so therefore he prays, turn away my reproach, which I dread. Do not let me go down the path and pursue a course of sin that would destroy my life. And what remedy had the Lord provided? What had the Lord provided so that he would not shipwreck his life on the jagged rocks of sin and destruction? Look at what the text says, the end of verse 39. How would God come through for him? He says, for your decrees are good. There's the answer. Do you see it? That is what prevents us from veering off the pleasure-filled path of holiness, namely the goodness of God's decrees. This is the goodness of God's word. And therefore, reading them, studying them, clinging to them, meditating on them, depending on them, trusting in them, getting them absorbed into the bloodstream of our soul is the only, I mean, the only way to avoid being poisoned by the serpent of sin. Let me ask you this. Do you have a rattlesnake in your bed? Are there drops of poison in your wine glass? 
Are you, are you tolerating the little flames and embers of sin in your life? Because the psalmist knew where that would lead, shame and disgrace and reproach, and yet there is a better way than that. In fact, the only way to avoid that is the goodness of God's decrees. And so I close with this. You see what the writer's doing, don't you? You see what he's doing. As he contemplates what it is that he's holding in his hand, he is meditating. He's meditating on the scriptures. He's doing it in front of us in real time, in the text. And as he contemplates the supremacy and the centrality and the absolute sufficiency of the word of God, he cannot but help but cry out in verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts. Let me live in your righteousness. So church, that's what the elders want for you. I mean, if we were limited to one prayer request for you, it would be that you would long with deep hunger and appetite for the precepts of God's word. That you would taste and see that the Lord is good in and through his word. That the sacred text would be more precious than gold to you, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb, that you would be able to say with the poet in verse 97, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. It's not just some piece of literature. It is a portal to the presence and power of God himself. And next week, rich is going to teach us how to read it the way the Bible wants us to read it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful for the power of the text. It's not just a piece of literature. This is not Robert Frost. This is not William Faulkner. This is not Herman Melville. This is not Chaucer. This is not Shakespeare. These are the words of the very living God, and they have a power. They are infused on every page with your very power. You meet with us. You speak to us. You move in us. You change us and transform us through the sacred text. And I'm asking, O Lord, that you would help us increase in our appetite for it and increase our dependence upon it. Even that is supernatural, Lord, so please work in us. And Lord, we know, we know that you are at work when your word is at the center of it all. So that is what we ask in the mighty and matchless name of your son.